This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. So much of what we know about vitamins is wrong. We trust that the word vitamin is shorthand for health, and the more we consume, even in pill form, the better. Well, yes, we need vitamins. Without them, no question, we would die. Yet, despite a century of scientific research, there is little consensus around even the simplest of questions. How much of a vitamin does our body need? And once ingested, how does it help us? One thing experts agree on is that the best way to get our nutrients is in the foods that naturally contain them. But thanks to processed foods, whose natural vitamins and other chemicals have often been removed or destroyed, we allow marketers to use the addition of synthetic vitamins to seduce and blind us to what else might be missing, leading many of us to accept as healthy those products we should otherwise reject. In this part of today's show, we're going to be taking an expedition through history and across continents to reveal the surprising story of how we came to believe that food could be medicine, nature could come in pills, and that anything natural must be safe, and how this way of thinking opened the door for a multi-billion dollar industry and a rotating cast of confusing dietary trends. So stay with us. We're going to be demolishing a lot of those cherished myths you might have about nutrition and challenging you to reevaluate your own beliefs. It all starts right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brought. My guest for this part of today's show is Catherine Price, who's the author of Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how... Have vitamins revolutionized the way that we think about food? Do we well, you know, even need they... food anymore? <laughs> no, no, we don't need food at all. No, vitamins have revolutionized the way we think about food because they actually were the first superfood, as I like to put it. Um, they were only discovered about 100 years ago. The, the word itself was coined in 1911. And they basically introduced the idea that there were these invisible, miraculous substances found in food that could have these profound effects on our health. And that idea has been transferred from vitamins to all sorts of other dietary trends we see today. So, you know, for example, like the magic of the chia seed, which is really trendy right now, um, or dietary supplements, which 
the, the supplement industry has done a very good job of convincing us to call vitamins, even though there's only 13 human vitamins and there's uh, 85,000 dietary supplement products in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, just from my little bit of experience with this, and I don't do a huge amount of, of writing about vitamins, but I, I haven't really found anybody who has said that they're absolutely necessary. Well, in vitamins, fact, a lot of people well, say that they aren't. You shouldn't be shouldn't yeah. be taking vitamins unless you're somehow in a position or in a, in an area where you're not able to get a well balanced uh, meal or well balanced meals for long periods of time. You're generally able to get the nutrients that you need out of whatever you're eating. Right. So what you're touching on is actually one of the biggest um, kind of confusions I came across when I was writing the book, which is that we tend to use the word vitamin to refer to much more than actual human vitamins. So. We tend to use the word vitamin and mean a pill. Like I was fascinated by how many people would say, you know, I'd say I'm writing a book about vitamins, and then they'd go immediately to pills, um, whereas the book really tries to go into the vitamins themselves as they're found naturally in food. Um, but to your point, yes, so you, we do need vitamins. There are 13 substances known as human vitamins. They're essential for our health. They are essential factors in all sorts of reactions that happen in our bodies that are necessary to keep us alive. With that said, that doesn't mean you have to get them from a pill. So as you're saying, you know, you can get these 13 vitamins from food. And in fact, that's probably why we evolved to not be able to make these vitamins ourselves. Um, we were able to get them from our diets or from our environments. So to answer your question, yes, it's quite possible to get the vitamins you need from your diet. I would say the only exceptions you'd have would be things like vitamin D, where it's kind of a weird vitamin where actually the main source of it is the sun, um, the sun turning cholesterol in our skin into the precursor for it. I don't think actually vitamin D was meant to be consumed through food to begin with because it's in very few foods. Um, right, and but it's, it's some, fortified. It's, there's a lot of different foods that are fortified with the vitamin D milk and things like that. That Yes, exactly, yeah. which is interesting to me, though, because I just had thought, like I think many people do, that when you see a carton of milk or sometimes orange juice or whatever else, and it's, or cocoa puffs, for example, and it says vitamin D. I, mean, I didn't think that cocoa puffs had vitamin D in them, but I thought that milk, like I thought that was just natural, and it was interesting to me to find out actually that's added in um, by humans. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just pointing out, you know, that actually isn't something that's naturally found in, oh, in right, milk. Oh, right, right. Well, I think yeah. p part of the reason that's there is because the, the nutritionist has found out that you need to have certain percentages or certain ratios of calcium, and and if you don't have the vitamin D the, in the proper ratios, you don't absorb the calcium. So that's part yeah, of the reason. So vitamin, yeah, yeah. So vitamin D is essential for calcium absorption. That's correct. Um, one thing that's interesting about what you just mentioned, though, is that the recommendations set by nutritionists are so... They're, they're guesstimates. They're very educated guesstimates, but there's no way to know for sure what everyone's requirement's going to be. And most of the time, the um, recommendations we see, or I should say the values you see on food and supplement labels when it says, like, I don't know, this cocoa puff has X amount of your vitamin D, it's based on very out-of-date versions of the recommendations. They're actually mostly from 1968, um, which I was very surprised to find out by. Uh, sorry, to find out about. So where would you go then for better, more accurate, more up-to-date numbers? You know, if you really wanted to obsess over this, uh, the, the <laughs> body that, <laughs> yeah. which perhaps the people do, the body uh, that government, sorry, it's non-governmental body that actually makes these official recommendations is the Institute of Medicine's Food and Nutrition Board. And they have come up with updated dietary, um, sorry, recommended dietary intakes. Basically, I mean, up to the 
current moment. The first RDAs, as they're called, were developed after or during World War II. They've been updated since then. So if you really wanted to get the most up-to-date ones, you could look up, they're called dietary reference intakes from the Institute of Medicine. But if that sounds confusing, it is, and I personally don't even recommend doing that. I would go back to what you were originally um, suggesting, which is really try to get your vitamins as much as possible from foods that naturally contain them. So you're saying that the, the discovery of vitamins, that there are these little phantom things that are running around our food, is a fairly new thing. Yes. How how did they figure this out, and how did you decide how did you know that A is A? Is that, it was A the first one that was discovered, and B was the second one, and then there were there are twelve and you know all different kinds of bees. And how, how do they even get their names? <laughs> well, you know it's such a complicated story. Basically, I went into this project totally naive, thinking, "Oh, okay, I'm going to uh, you know answer these very basic questions about vitamins, and people are going to have these answers for me. It'll be straightforward history." And it turns out it really was a very long process um, to discover the vitamins because in order to figure out vitamins, you have to figure out a number of other things. And one of the most important things of which is that you can have a vitamin deficiency disease, right? So you can have a disease that's caused by something that's not there, which if you think about it is a really weird concept, um, especially because in the early days of nutrition, it was also the kind of heyday of the beginnings of germ theory, the idea or the you know, fact that many diseases are caused by bacteria. So you had these horrible diseases um, that we now know are caused by vitamin deficiencies, like scurvy, which is vitamin C, pellagra, right. which is niacin, right? So people tried to look for bacterial explanations for these diseases for quite a long time. And it was very controversial. Like the first people who started to suggest, hey, I think this actually might be a deficiency in something, like not actually a bacteria, were not taken seriously. So that took a very long time to be accepted. And then to answer your question about how they were named, I find this totally fascinating. There was a um, Polish biochemist named Casimir Funk who was studying what we now know as thiamine, which is vitamin B1. And he actually never isolated it, but he was a genius in terms of coming up with a name for these things. So he proposed the word vitamine with an E on the end of it. And he did that by mashing up vita, which is a Latin word for life, and then putting amine on the end of it. Um, for the chemical structure he thought all of them would turn out to be. And a lot of other of his contemporaries were like, we don't want to call that vitamin. Like, what the heck is that? You know, <laughs> we, we don't even know they're all this chemical structure, which they're not. So they suggested other things like food accessory factor or like food <laughs> hormone. Or okay. in the case of, of the guy who discovered or claimed to discover vitamin A, he called it um, fat-soluble A. And he called vitamin B water-soluble B. So okay. The early scientists didn't think this word was going to last. And in fact, they, they basically capitulated by chopping off that E and saying, okay, I guess we'll call it a vitamin if people are not going to give up on this word. And then they tacked on the letters that had also become common at that point to describe them. Mm -hmm. And the reason it didn't go away in large part was because um, food marketers caught on to vitamins in the 20s, which is really when many of them were also being chemically identified for the first time. And they're like, that's a fantastic word. Like, vitamin is great, you know? <laughs> Such a catchy word. And also, what an amazing substance to have discovered because people need them. They're invisible. They're tasteless. We can't measure them, but they exist in all these foods. So it became this wonderful marketing tool for um, food marketers to use. And it basically, you know, it took off from there and hasn't stopped since. Was the amine part related to amino acids? 
Yeah, so it was a, a yeah a structure, nitrogen-containing nitrogen organic base. So he was working on thiamines, um, which turned out to be that. But the other interesting thing about vitamins, of which there are only 13, is that they're actually not all the same in terms of their chemistry. There's, as, as I learned when I was researching the book, there's no chemical definition of what a vitamin is. It's really more that um, they were grouped together by historical happenstance where they were discovered around the same time. They're, we do need them all. But then it, it's so interesting because then you can't actually pin down a definition, right? Because, like, vitamin D, you don't normally get from food. You get it from the ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Or, you know, some of the other ones you actually, your body can make on its own in small amounts. So you don't technically need to get it from food. I argue that because the word was just so fantastic, like we still think of these 13 substances as this family, when in reality they're like at best kind of, you know, like second cousins or something like that, several times removed. Catherine Price is the author of Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Catherine. This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat, and apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink. And you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all, before they're teens. And you could do things that, honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom, I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Carter Fleming, Community Center Volunteer. The giving spirit is as passionate in the boomers today as it was in our 20s, and we as a generation can still impact our country. Lead, inspire, change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service in this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Catherine Price, who is the author of Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food, wanted to have you talk a little bit about minerals. Did you manage to get a, across some of those things? Because as you were talking about vitamin D being necessary for calcium absorption, magnesium is another one that, that, that needs to be in there as well. And it seems like right. there must have been some overlap in learning about vitamins and learning about minerals as well. You know, actually, I really focused on the vitamins because they turned out to be so mysterious that there wasn't really room for the minerals. I mean, I, I will say, like, I, vitamin, I'm sorry, minerals are fascinating, and uh, there's a lot of interesting research going on about what they actually do in our bodies. But 
that's not my area of expertise. I really focus on the vitamins. Okay. Well, then we'll stick with vitamins. <laughs> so are, are there any that are absolutely essential? Well, they all are. They all are. You can't live without vitamins. I mean, basically what vitamins do is they, they help us with enzymatic reactions in our body. And what that means, basically our, our bodies are run by chemical reactions. Like everything we do is a chemical reaction, turning oxygen into energy, breaking down the food that we eat, using that for energy, um, coming up with thoughts. They're all chemical reactions creating new tissues, right? So these chemical reactions on their own would often be extremely slow, so slow that life couldn't actually exist. So we developed these things called enzymes, and those are basically molecules, large protein molecules that speed up these reactions many, many, many times faster. And they basically enable life to happen because they speed these things up so much that we can, you know, I just ate dinner and I'm going to be able to use that energy very quickly instead of like three years from now. Um, but these enzymes sometimes need help doing their jobs or we sometimes need help making the enzymes and that's where vitamins come in so many of vitamins primary um, you know roles is to help us either use the enzymes or create the enzymes in the first place um, and you basically need a continuous supply of vitamins in order to keep creating or using these enzymes if that makes sense so that's why they're essential so I think that's a very interesting point is that we can't live without the vitamins but what's happened is that they've moved beyond this, this original necessary purpose, and they've become in our mind something bigger, where we think that if they're miraculous when you get them, if you're deficient in them, then they also must be miraculous if you take even more than you need. And that is not true. Well, yeah, that, that that's, I think, something that's really probably not known as well as it should be, that you can right. really, you can OD on some of these things. In yeah. a pretty significant way. And and I think you know, there's, there's been some change. I remember vitamin C for a while when I was younger was the miracle drug. And Linus Pauling was curing cancer mm -hmm. and winning Nobel Prizes. And then you find out, well, if you smoke and you take vitamin C, then you're in big trouble. And you know, different similar kinds of things with vitamin E and that they're, right, they, they've right. gone I mean, the through some, some evolution. Yeah, I mean, the smoking thing actually, I believe, was the beta carotene. Vitamin C, actually, if you're a smoker, you need more of it because it helps clear free radicals from your body. But right, right. Yes, to your point, Linus Pauling, I mean, he won Nobel Prizes that did not have to do with vitamin C. <laughs> he basically got a lot of, you know, deserved fame for his achievements in chemistry. And then he, like, totally went a little bit off the deep end with the vitamin C recommendations, which are still really popular today. A lot of people, I mean, anyone who takes airborne... Or, or emergency, right, is buying into right. the idea that taking super doses of C is going to be good for you. Um, now, C is, like, relatively innocuous as they go because you're not going to become immediately poisoned by it. There are other ones, the fat-soluble vitamins like A, B, E, and K, that have many more issues with them, particularly A, which can be a problem for your liver and not that, like, in amounts that are not that much greater than the, um, the recommended amount. So in general, I just caution people against believing in superdoses of any kind. And, yeah. and another point I make is just like with the C, for example, right? It's not – if I were to take 5,000 milligrams of C right now, nothing's really going to happen. I'll pee out a lot of it. People like to say Americans have the most expensive urine in the world because of our supplements, right? But I just don't entirely believe that if you saturate your body's systems with C over years, then nothing's going to happen. Yeah. So like a plant needs a certain amount of water, and if you – 
one day just put a whole bucket of water on it, nothing bad's going to happen, even though it doesn't need the extra. But if you do that every day over months, over years, whatever, you're probably going to like rot the root system, yeah. and it's not going to be good. No, so I, I was we, I was told yeah, to I, take anyways, the, to caution them against you know super doses. Well, you know, I was told to take some vitamin B12 supplements. And uh-huh. I think vitamin B12 may be an, an exception to some of these vitamin B things because the kind that I got, it was Costco, and it, I mean, really and truly has 85,000 times the, <laughs> the RDA. The, right, the right. Recommended daily. It's 85,000 times. And apparently, according to my doctor, part of the problem is that your body just has a terrible time absorbing vitamin B12. And so yeah, you have to take B12. these massive doses. Yeah. <laughs> what do you love vitamin- about it? Well, first of all, it's hot pink. I mean, what's not to love about that? I didn't know that that was possible, but I saw it in powdered form. It's hot. It looks like sidewalk chalk. Um, no, I love it for many reasons, really. Like, for example, the discovery story, which gets to your point about the absorption. If you don't have enough B12, which, by the way, the daily requirement is something like one sixty-seventh of one grain of salt, where it's, it's like 2.4 micrograms. It's so small. If you don't have enough of it, it can cause uh, dementia, delusions, like permanent dementia, um, and pernicious anemia, which will kill you. So when it was discovered at the turn of the 20th century, the doctor who discovered it had these patients who were basically dying of pernicious anemia. And he decided that he was going to try a pretty crazy-sounding experiment to cure them. Namely, he would eat hamburger, and then he would make himself throw it up, and then he (laughs) would take the half-digested hamburger and put it into his patient's stomach and see what happened. Right, there okay. were no like review boards back then. <laughs> I don't think he, they knew. I think the patients did not know what was actually being given to them, but it worked. So these people were cured, and the reason is that in order to absorb B12, you need um, two stages to happen in your body. One is to have acid in your stomach that can cleave the molecule in a way that it's absorbable, and then you need another factor that's called to absorb those cleaved molecules into your body. So as we age, it's very difficult um, to absorb adequate B12 because we often don't produce as much stomach acid. So for people over like 50 or 60, it's often recommended to take it as a supplement because it's better absorbed that way. Um, And also, I should note that it's only found in animal products because it's produced by a bacteria, like by fermentation. So if you are a vegan, you need to watch out a bit B12 because it is possible to become deficient if you're excluding all um, animal products from your diet. Okay, so you your original question, I don't really think you need 85,000 times what the RDA says back in a bottle, but I think it'd be pretty hard for them to have a pill that only had 167th of one grain of salt worth of B12 <laughs> in it. I guess you just inhale it or something, I don't know. Yeah, right, exactly. But, so you've been researching this in, in a fairly serious way for quite a while. Has it changed the way that you eat or the number of pills you take or what you take? Has it, has it changed your life in any way? Um, yeah, I think it's made me feel better in many ways about what I'm eating and more confident about how to interpret um, all the headlines we see all the time in the newspapers and magazines, whatever, about superfoods or new um, dietary studies that are coming out. And to speak to the first part, I eat a lot of vegetables. Um, I'm not a vegetarian, but I I do try to eat non-processed foods as much as possible. I have type 1 diabetes, so I really need to be careful about processed carbohydrates in particular. And what this research made me realize is that I probably am getting most of my vitamins just fine through those foods. And perhaps even more importantly, there's just all these other chemical substances in those foods that are not vitamins 
the purposes of which we don't really know, but that I'm getting when I'm eating, say, a strawberry. So that made me feel a lot better because if you're eating like breakfast cereal and it says you're getting all these vitamins and minerals, that's just because we added them back in. You basically take grain, process it so it doesn't have any vitamins or minerals. Um, there are very few of its original micronutrients in it. And then you put them back in. And when you do that, you don't have the other stuff that used to be in that grain, which might be having beneficial health effects. So that was one thing. And then in terms of the nutritional headlines, I mean, when I started this book, as I mentioned, I just thought I'd be able to find answers to these, to my seemingly simple questions, like what does the vitamin do in our body? Like what does vitamin C do? And I realized we don't have all the answers for vitamins. And when I realized that, I realized, well, if that's like one of the most basic building blocks of nutrition we think there is, that means we really don't know all the answers to nutrition in general. And you really do need to take headlines in newspapers and magazines with a big grain of salt because their job is to have news and have headlines. And if they just always said, like, hey, carrots are good for you, you know, <laughs> it's not really that interesting. Catherine Price, the author of Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food. Catherine, thanks very much. Oh, thank you so much. Dear Mom and Dad, one thing I've learned in the Army is that when you're lucky enough to get a little time off, you should put it to good use. So I'm taking a moment to write and tell you that I'm fine and doing well. We have good days and bad days over here. We try to remember the good ones and get through the bad ones as best we can. Mostly we have each other, and that's what keeps us going. That and the pride of our commitment to getting the job done, whatever it takes. I miss you all very much and can't wait to get back to life as usual. Please tell everybody hello for me and that I'll be home soon. And Mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love. Your son, Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people, people just like you. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Here's an Ask Mr. Dad question that is something that a lot of us have to deal with. Dear Mr. Dad, my five-year-old son was completely toilet-trained. He'd given up his pacifier and was chattering away in full sentences, but ever since we brought our infant daughter home from the hospital, he's regressed. He's having accidents almost every night, has started sucking his thumb, and is speaking like a two-year-old. What is going on, and what can we do to get our boy to start acting his age again? Well, as annoying as it is, your son's behavior is actually very common, especially among firstborns. Think about it from his perspective. Until his baby sister showed up, he was the center of the universe, and he had you and your spouse all to himself. But now, that whiny little brat, in his view anyway, has displaced him. He sees how quickly you respond when the baby cries, and he's well aware of how much time you spend changing her diapers. So, in the not-completely-rational mind of a five-year-old, if he cries more, wets his bed, and generally acts like a baby, you'll spend more time with him, just like you used to when he was an only child. In addition to the nighttime accidents, baby talk and thumb-sucking that you've noticed, newly created older siblings can often develop a variety of other behavioral issues. These include becoming aggressive and demanding, having trouble sleeping, and temper tantrums, all of which are attempts to regain the attention and the love that he thinks he's lost. There's no question that your son's behavior is going to be frustrating. Fortunately, it's temporary. 
Once he gets used to having the baby around, that usually happens within four to six months, he'll gradually change back to his older, more mature self. In the meantime, try not to criticize his behavior or punish him for it. Instead, go along with it. At the same time, subtly remind him that he's a big brother with big brother abilities and privileges. There are a few things you can do to speed this process along. To start with, get out your old photo albums and show him pictures of when he was a baby. The goal here is to remind him that he was once an infant and that his new sister isn't getting anything that he didn't get when he was that age. Next, make a serious effort to spend time with him one-on-one. He needs your undivided attention, even if it's only for 15 minutes a day. Snuggle up in bed and read stories together, do art projects, go for walks or bike rides, eat ice cream, all activities that only big kids get to do. Another way to help him get used to his new role is to show him how he can help with the baby, either by assisting with diaper changes or feedings or just entertaining her. Always supervise his contact with her, though, and don't push too hard. If your son resists your efforts to involve him in the baby care, back off a little bit. If you're too insistent, he may end up resenting his new sister. After all, she's your baby, not his. Finally, watch out for gifts. He's going to get jealous if every person who walks in the door brings something special for the baby and nothing for him but a pat on the head and a silly comment about how much fun it is to be a big brother. Yeah, right. So, put the word out to friends and family to bring something small for your son as well. If you've got a question or a comment for us here at Positive Parenting, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment, depending on which week it is. Until then, I'm Armin Broad. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.